the introduction to where we're going is there are basically two different types of religion in the world and only two different types of religion in the world. One type of religion is a man-centered, works-based religion where I do this, I do this, I do this, and I end up earning salvation because I tip the scales of my balance. That's a false religion, but it's out there and it's everywhere. And when you encounter people, they will talk to you about what you have to do in order to earn salvation. The other side is a grace-based salvation that is not by what we have done or what we have accomplished, but it is what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. And what we do is simply repent of our sins, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then we're united with Christ and being united with Christ, we have a grace-based salvation. Aren't you thankful that we have a grace-based salvation and we don't continually have to work? This was the struggle in the Reformation with Martin Luther when he was determining, have I done enough good works? Have I not done enough good works? And he was a tormented soul in his own mind because he kept trying to figure out, how can I make sure that I've tipped the scales in my favor? And knowing the wickedness of our own hearts, that would be a question we would all struggle with. I do something good, but then I have this bad thought. I do something good, but then I do something bad. And we would know in our own hearts that there's a constant struggle between how to do things in a way that's going to ultimately tip the scales. And that's where Luther comes along and discovers justification by faith. You look at Romans and it talks about how we are justified by faith. And when you look at the book of Hebrews, we walk through and we begin the section now of the examples of faith. And the first example of faith we start off with is Abel. Now, Abel is a contrasting example of faith. Some of the others that we see, it'll be stories of how their faith led them to go to certain places or to do great acts. But here, what we're going to see is a contrasting image between Cain and between Abel, and it's two ways that you could basically look at religion. We'll talk about that a little more. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4, and I'm not going to have you stand today just so we can keep moving through this, but it says in verse 4 there, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So you see the contrasting image. Right up front is set with by faith, Abel, and then you have Cain, through which he was commended as righteousness. You'll remember from last time, when we talked about the word commended, it was the word martyrio, the word for witness. You can hear the word martyr in there. And if you're a martyr, you're a witness for Christ. And so here we have God testifying, basically, God witnessing, God saying that, that by faith, Abel then was righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, this is one of those occasions where we look at one of the heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11, and we say, I don't want to follow in their footsteps. Because if we follow in Abel's footsteps, really the only thing recorded about his life is he got killed by his brother, right? Anybody in the room want to get killed by your brother? I see no hands. Seeing no takers, we'll assume that we don't really want to volunteer for that type life. But we also understand that it's by his faith that God testified or God witnessed to the fact that he was as righteous. Now that word as righteous is an important word and I don't have time to flesh it out fully in one chapel service and still talk to you about what happened in Genesis. But the word righteous here also connects to the word justification. And when you look throughout the text and you look at justification or justify or just, and you look at righteousness and you see the two roots are connected, what we see in our text here is that it's by faith that God is witnessing or God is testifying or God is commending and saying that Abel by his faith was declared righteous. 
Now, back up to your systematic theology, which some of you have not had yet, but you're going to have this. And when you do, you're going to talk about salvation. And you're going to talk about the moments of salvation. And you're going to understand that in Scripture, when you look, we're predestined, we are elected, and that happens before salvation. And you move forward to that moment of salvation. And in that moment of salvation, which we call conversion, you have repentance and faith. And your repentance and your faith in Christ is accompanied by regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart to give you a new heart, which makes you a new creation in Christ, it's at that moment that you are adopted into the family of God. It's at that moment that you are justified and justified is God's legal act, his forensic legal act of declaring you as righteous. Now, how does God declare you as righteous when we know we're not righteous? It's because what God does is he unites us then with Christ because of our repentance and faith and we have imputed righteousness. Christ's righteousness then is imputed to us and when God looks at us, he sees his righteousness instead of our wrongs and because of what Christ has done, he forgives us of those sins that we've committed and so we are then justified. We are declared righteous. It's by faith that Abel was declared righteous. So when that age-old question pops up, how were Old Testament saints saved? They were saved because they looked forward to Christ and what he did on the cross, just as we look backwards to Christ and what he did on the cross, and they were saved or justified in the same way that we are. They were justified by Christ and what he did. And here it's by faith that Abel then was declared righteous. After that moment of salvation, we then walk through the Christian life in sanctification. In sanctification, continuing on by faith, we hopefully are going to be better. We're not going to be the person we used to be, but we're never going to be the person we ought to be. But we're going to be on a trajectory of greater holiness, being more sanctified toward God until we reach that moment where we are ultimately glorified, where we are either called up to be with Christ or where whether God raises us from the dead, glorifies our body. And then that's the salvation experience that we talk about. And so here we see very clearly in the book of Hebrews that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice because it was by faith. And through that, God declared him as righteous. This is his justification. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, even though he died, he still speaks to us today. Now, where do you find this passage of scripture? You all know where it is. It's in Genesis chapter four. So flip in your Bibles from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. And let's look at what it says to us in Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, we're gonna look here at the 15 verses briefly. It's a narrative passage. It won't take us long to go through it. And as we look at these 15 verses, you're gonna see three different scenes. As you see these three different scenes, you're gonna see one central idea. And the central idea of the text is that Abel was commended by faith, whereas Cain was condemned by a lack of faith. So by faith, Abel was commended. By a lack of faith, Cain was condemned. Now, what's our simple definition of faith? Our simple definition of faith is trusting God in his word. By trusting God in his word, then Abel was commended. Cain lacked that faith, and so he was condemned. Here in the first scene, we are introduced to two characters. In chapter four, verse one, it says, now Adam knew Eve, and you understand what it means when it says he knew her there. And so he knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. How many of you are the older brother or the older sister in the room? Raise your hand. 
We're the best, aren't we? How many of you are those poor souls known as the younger or middle child? We, we will say a prayer for you because here clearly as we're introduced to two characters in the text, we see who the favorite is right away. The favorite is the oldest and the first, right? Because the favorite gets the name Cain. And the Cain, the name means with the help of the Lord, basically, I have acquired. And so acquired, and so with the help of God, he has blessed me with this son. And Eve here thinks this son is that promised son from Genesis 3.15 that's going to be the ultimate redemption. And so here we have the son. We call him Cain. He was acquired with the help of the Lord. Oh, and that second poor soul, his name is Abel. He's a breath. He's a vapor, and he's gone. Oh, but think about the oldest son. He took up the family business. He works and tills the ground, and so he's the favored son. He learned the ways probably from his father, and, and he's continuing the family business, and what's gonna put you in greater favor than continuing the family business, right? And then you've got that other one over there who's just the keeper of the sheep, and he does those type things, and so he's the second son. Do you see how this progresses? and how it looks, and all of us who are the oldest puff out our chest a little bit and think, yeah, this is the way it worked at my house too, right? But we'll see later on that that's not necessarily the case. We are introduced to two characters, Cain and Abel. Immediately, we look in the text and we see a contrasting image take place here. Cain, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and Abel, no explanation of his name. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground, still contrasting images. And the contrasting image continues here as we look to scene two, when scene two is the sacrifice that's being brought. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought a sacrifice of the offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. And so still in this contrasting image and now the ultimate revenge for all of those who are the younger child as they look and see that Cain's self-centered sacrifice was rejected and Abel's by faith sacrifice was accepted and all the younger siblings in the room yell amen, right? And all of us older children just deal with it because it's in the Bible. And it's all throughout the Old Testament where you see the older and the younger and the contrasting images here. But let's look at what's happening. In verse three, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. If you remember back to the Hebrews passage, it was plural in its offerings. And so there's some indication from the Hebrew passage and from this passage that there was an expectation of offerings to be brought. Now, we don't know how that happened. The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us if Adam taught his children about bringing offerings to the Lord. He doesn't tell us if this was a sin offering or if this was a thank offering. And a lot of people want to say, well, the reason that Cain's offering was rejected and that Abel's was accepted is that Abel's was a blood sacrifice. And we all know, because we've read the rest of the Old Testament, that it's by the shedding of blood is the remission of sins. And so that's why it wasn't there. But there's nothing in the text that tells us that this had to be a blood sacrifice. There's nothing recorded in Genesis at this 
this point that tells us that was a requirement. And so really what we have to be careful of is that we don't anachronistically read back into the Old Testament things that we already know. And as we're looking at it, we can see that it's by faith. We even have a few clues in the text, although there's not not a lot here to, to go off of. But it says that in the course of time, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Doesn't say he brought the first fruits. It doesn't say he brought the best fruits. It doesn't say anything other than it was fruit of the ground. That's all we know. But it tells us that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so the indication here seems to give us that Abel brought the best he had and that Cain may have just brought something. We don't know for sure. We know from Hebrews that Abel brought his by faith, Cain didn't. And so we see that one is accepted, one is not. And here we see it. So Cain gets very angry and his face falls. And the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Now, don't you love this? It's all throughout Genesis. The Lord asks questions he already knows the answers to. And he's gonna do it again later on in this text. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Why was he angry? Because the younger brother outdid him at offering a sacrifice and the younger brother's was accepted and his was not. And we call that jealousy. And so we see in Genesis that Eve sinned. She was jealous because God knew things. And so she ate of the fruit, maybe with a noble endeavor because she wanted to be like God because she was jealous. We see here with Cain that he was jealous of his brother and it caused anger to flare up and it caused his face to fall and it caused that self-centered jealousy to well up inside of us. And there's an application for us here and that as we live the Christian life and we see that jealousy welling up inside of us for somebody else, whether it's over a gift they have, whether it's over how good they look, whether it's over their personality, whether it's over their brains, how well they play a sport, any number of different things that we may be jealous about, we can look throughout scripture and understand that that jealousy and that self-centeredness is nothing more than sin and that we should not be jealous. We should not be self-centered. We are never called to be as good as somebody else. We're called to be the best we can be for Christ and to use our gifts for him. And so here we see that he's angry and his face fell. And as his face fell, God says to him, you have sinned, get away from me, I'm done with you. Is that what he says? He knows what's gonna happen. And yet God still pursues him and God still comes after him. And so here we see the root of bitterness, the root of sin, very angry, and God says to him, why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And there's application there that we could draw out for an extended time. He got angry. His whole countenance fell. And God says to him, sin is at the door crouching and waiting for you. Its desire is to control you and to rule over you. And we understand when you look at James 1.15 that we have these sinful desires and when we allow these sinful desires to continue in us, those desires end up producing sinful actions. Those sinful actions end up producing death. And what we have here in the story of Cain and Abel is the perfect example of allowing a sinful temptation to foster and for that to become a sinful action and for that sinful action then to lead 
lead us into death. And so what's some of the application we can draw from this? When that first temptation starts, when that first temptation begins to enter into our hearts and our minds, we have to deal with that temptation while it is still just a temptation. And we have to rule over it. We have to turn to God and we have to pray and we have to look at what the scripture says. And we have to, by faith, by trusting in what God's word says in his word, we have to overcome those sinful temptations that come to us. If you don't, Sinful temptations turn into desires that turn into actions that turn into death in your life. Do you want to follow in the way of Cain? Here he continues on. He says, you have to rule over it. And then we see in section number three, the murder and the judgment that takes place. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Now I'll just stop right there. Can you imagine the scene that takes place here? Cain is mad and God is talking to him and saying, if you do well, then won't you be accepted? And Cain obviously here is just not listening to God. He's giving God the hand, talk to the hand because the ears aren't in, right? He's just saying, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen. I am mad and I'm going to be mad and I'm going to focus on me and I'm not going to focus on you. And so all of a sudden Cain says to his brother, hey, go for a walk in the field. Now, we're not told how he killed him. In my mind, you know, in some ways, I think he might have let him go ahead of him and then, then he jumps on the back and puts him in a rear naked choke and chokes him out and, and takes him out in that way. But I don't think that's it from looking at the text because the blood cries out from the ground. And so I, I don't think he choked him out. I think perhaps he had a, a club or a stick or something hidden or, or nearby and, and they had already slayed an animal because they were offering it as a sacrifice. So they knew what it was to kill something and have something bleed out. They understood what that was. And so in an act of premeditated murder, he tells his brother, hey, you want to go for a walk? And, and maybe he picks up a stick or a club or something and whacks him in the back of the head or hits him again and begins to beat on him and his blood begins to spill out on the ground. And here is Cain over his brother blood spilling out onto the ground and what does he do verse 9 it says the Lord said to Cain where is Abel your brother he said I don't know am I my brother's keeper the Lord said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So as we back up and we look at this, in verse 9, the Lord comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother Abel? Remember those questions? Adam, where are you? What have you done? Where's your brother Abel? It's kind of like those questions that I used to get as a child that you shouldn't ask my dad about on Thursday where he would come to me and he would say, Thomas, is there something you need to tell me? Anybody out there ever had that question asked of you? I even see faculty members raising their hands. That's comforting to me. And when, they, when that question's asked, what immediately goes through your mind? Uh-oh. 
And then all the things that mom and dad may not know race through your mind and you have to Rolodex them in your mind to figure out which one is bad enough that they will think you're telling them the whole story, but not so bad that it's the worst possible one because you're gonna play the law of averages here and give them something that's a little less than the worst thing you've done just in case they didn't know about that one so that you could logically get away with it. Is that what you do? Come on now, I'm not the only one. Raise your hand, you do it too, right? All right, I got an amen on that, that's awesome, all right. It's really not, but it's kind of cool. And so here we see the same type situation. Cain is sitting here though, and instead of even being that person though that's gonna go through the Rolodex and say, okay, what what did I get busted for? On the scale of one to 10, the worst thing I've done in the past week is about a seven. And dad probably knows about one that's about a three. So I will give him the one that's a three and see how he reacts to that one. And you give him the one that's a three. And if he knew about the one that's a seven, you're in double trouble. But if he knows about the seven, you're already in bad enough trouble. It doesn't matter anyway, right? And so that's what we do. That's not what he did. He didn't even make up a story. Oh, yeah, it was a horrible accident. We were rock climbing. He slipped and fell and hit his head on a rock and died. I don't know what happened, God. He's just fragile. He's a vapor. Remember, that's his name. Breath and it's gone. He didn't even do that, according to the text that we have. He looks at God, who knows everything, and he says to God here, all of a sudden, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I in charge of my brother? You can even hear the attitude in the statement as we read the text, right? Why are you asking me, God? I'm not in charge of him. And God knows. Now, how foolish is it for him to respond this way? And how foolish is it for us when we respond to God in similar manners? over things that we've done and yet we want to rationalize our behavior or justify our behavior or deny our behavior and we don't want to repent and we don't want to bring things to light and we don't want to confess that we have done things that are wrong and we don't want to get right with God because in our prideful arrogance and our sinfulness, we're still so focused on us that we can't focus on anything else. And as we focus on ourselves, we respond in the same way. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, it says here, and the Lord said, what have you done? You know, he knew. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and here comes the judgment. And here's another instance where we understand it's by faith that we are saved through grace of something that we do not deserve. And when we reject to have that faith and to believe in Jesus Christ through grace that is offered to us, then we receive the judgment and the condemnation that comes. And so through his own desires, through his own sin, here comes the judgment. And now you are cursed from the ground. The thing that he did, his occupation, his work. God says the ground, you are now cursed from it, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it's no longer going to yield to you its strength. Now there's a point to be made here too, about things that we do well, that we want to take responsibility for. And we want to say, look at us and look how smart I am or how good I am. And God says here, those are gifts that I gave them. And if I gave them to you, I can take them away from you. And so you better be thankful for the gifts that I gave you. And so many times we take things for granted, including our health, the ability to run and jump and play and think and act. And when those things are gone, then you you understand how much you had that you weren't thankful for. And here we see a lesson where God says, no longer will the ground give you of its fruit. You're going to work it. And if you work it, it's going to give you nothing. It's not going to give you your strength. You shall be, as he calls him here, a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now he didn't have a four wheel drive truck with a brush guard on the front and a gun rack in the back. And I've got one country boy left in the room. All right, right there. All right. He didn't have that. 
To be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth was a dangerous thing in these times. You had wild animals. You had the sun, the elements, the weather. You had things going around. Perhaps you had other people, siblings perhaps, who were looking to come take vengeance on somebody who had killed one of their brothers. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And here we see an example, a very clear example of what we see in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7.10 contrasts two different types of repentance. And the two types of repentance contrasted is godly sorrow that really produces repentance and worldly sorrow that leads to death. And here we see a great example of worldly sorrow and not godly repentance. When Cain gets his punishment, he doesn't look at God and say, God, what have I done? I killed my brother. I slayed my very flesh and blood. I killed him in an act of premeditated murder and anger and rage. I am sorry that I have sinned against my brother. I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. There is no godly sorrow represented in this passage. Look at what he does. My punishment is greater than I can bear. If you're here in the room and your only act of feeling bad about sin is the punishment because it affects you, then recognize that that's still self-centeredness. You're still focused on you and not focused on the fact that you've sinned against a holy God. And if you're focused on you and focused on the punishment, that's a worldly sorrow that brings death. That's not a godly sorrow that brings repentance. And it's not what we would consider salvation because repenting of your sins is saying, I've done things that are wrong. I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna go in a different direction. And here, that's not what we see. We see somebody who's bartering with God on the punishment. Lord, this is too steep. This is too great. I can't bear this. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. You've driven me from what I do and you've driven me from your face. I shall be hidden. And we understand that God is everywhere. God is all present. So he's not gonna be outside of God's presence, but God is gonna withhold his presence from him. And so just as the ultimate final judgment, he's gonna experience that withholding of the presence. And he says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. You see the self-centeredness still present. He's worried about the fact that somebody's gonna damage him, harm him, kill him. Somebody's gonna take vengeance upon him. And here you see even God's grace as he comes forward and the Lord says to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. We don't know what the mark is. We don't have any idea what it looks like. We don't get a clue in the text. And so it's speculation to know what the mark is. But whatever the mark is, it's an act of God's grace on him to say to him, you're not gonna be immediately killed. And perhaps God did it so that he would be an example to others walking around to say, this is what happens when you allow sin to crouch at the door and it becomes actual actions that you have taken and it results in death. Later on, when we look at the Pentateuch, we see that if you've killed somebody, that you should be stoned to death. You should be killed yourself. And here we see grace and mercy that God gives him by marking him and saying, nobody else is gonna take vengeance upon you. Perhaps as an example, but we're not given any clue other than that. And here he says to him, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just by parenthetical note here, anytime you see things moving east of Eden, that's a bad sign. In the Bible, you have Eden. Adam and Eve are kicked out to the east. Cain is kicked out to the east. When you look and you see Lot, Lot settled in the east. Every time you see something moving to the east, it's moving farther and farther away from God. And that's a bad sign as you look at this. And here we see Cain moving to the east as well. 
So we have in conclusion two ways. We have the way of Cain. And when you look at the way of Cain, we're given a couple other verses in the New Testament that highlight this. Jude 11 and 12 says, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now there's a deep verse with that trilogy that Jude was so fond of, of bad things happening. But one of those bad things is the way of Cain. 1 John 3, 12 through 14, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder, murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We also have the way of Abel. And in the way of Abel, you'll remember that in the book of Matthew, that Jesus goes through a section where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And on the third section where he's doing the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he goes into a discussion where he says, you have murdered the prophets. And in verse 35, he comes around and he says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And then we get the ultimate point to the gospel. As we understand that it's by faith that Abel was declared, justified, made as righteous, we understand that Hebrews then goes on in chapter 12, immediately the chapter after the one we're focused on, in verse 24, and says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word of Abel, than the blood of Abel does. And so Abel's blood, he, he did his sacrifice by faith. He was declared as righteous. He was murdered wrongly. His blood cries out for justice, and we get that. And especially in this day and time, we get the crying out for justice. We understand that when we look at ISIS killing and persecuting Christians overseas, that we cry out to God and we want to demand justice. Lord, why do you let these evil band of evildoers do things against your people? Why don't you just wipe them off the face of the earth? We want justice, Lord, and something in us demands justice. When we look at things like are happening with Jerusalem and the Middle East, we want justice and we want peace and we want things to be set right. And when we look at things that are happening in Ferguson, we want justice. We want thorough investigations and justice. We want to know what's right and we want what's right to be done, whatever that may be. We want things to be set right. We do not like injustice. We don't want to tolerate injustice. We want justice. But then when it comes to our own salvation, do we really want justice? Because see, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And here Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and his sprinkled blood is a sprinkled blood that doesn't cry out justice, it cries out grace. It cries out mercy on the cross. It provides the justice that God demands to be the just judge, but it provides the grace and mercy that we have to have in order to be saved. And so when we see the blood that cries out justice, we also look to the blood of Jesus and we thank God for the mercy and grace that he's given us. And so today you have two ways. You can follow in the way of Cain and be condemned. You can follow in the way of Abel and be commended as righteous. It's by faith that Abel was commended as righteous, trusting in God and his word. It's by lack of faith Cain didn't believe what God said was true. And it's by his sinful actions and desires of letting sin creep in and doing against what God has said that he was condemned. It's the choice we all have before us.
It's the choice that we live our life with. So today, it's my prayer for you that you're following the greater word that is spoken by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, which provides grace for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for the mercy. Lord, I pray we would never take it for granted. God, I pray that even as we leave here today, Lord, that you would help us just to continually focus on living a life by faith. Each and every day when we get up that we will focus on the fact that we want to live and we want to live by faith to your honor and to your glory. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.